and I will be so glad to get over this allergy. I would love to have a voice back. <clears throat> be so helpful. Praise the Lord. I'm glad to have you here tonight. Thank you so much. We have had a little warmer day today, but my goodness, I can't complain because I know that we need to relish these warm days because there's not too many more of them before it gets cold. So enjoy them. Have you noticed, though we're getting 90s in the daytime, evenings are slipping up and getting in the 50s now? Did you notice that? <laughs> well, before long, it'll be in the 40s, and then we won't go beyond that. Well, praise the Lord. It's been, uh, it's been, a, it's been a good week. I appreciate so much uh, God's faithfulness and His working, and, and um, I appreciate so much hearing when our people are helping bear one another's burdens. That means so much. Thank you. It's good to know that uh, when prayer requests go out, that our people are actually praying and asking God for, for help in the various matters. There have been so many that uh, we've shot out on the, the uh, prayer chain more recently, but I'd ask you to remember to pray for Jerry Ruckel, for God to do a work of healing in her and, and, uh, and uplifting her, and that she would be able to tolerate the, uh, the rounds of chemo that they have planned. They have decided to change and give her a different kind of chemo once she heals up from the first one, and so just, just pray that, uh, that she's able to endure all of that. Um, this evening, we're going to be in, Lord willing, Isaiah chapters 58 and 59. We'll see how much we get covered tonight. And we are, hard to believe, we are on the downslope of this book. Hard to believe. Right now, the Lord is, seems to be impressing me, and I've done some study in preparation for it, but seems to be impressing me to, to tackle the book of Genesis. And so it uh, looks like we're going to be attacking that book once we uh, finish this one, and so I would appreciate your prayers in that. Let me read the first uh, couple of verses, then we'll pray and, and get into a lesson. Isaiah 58, 1 and 2, Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily, and delight to know my ways, as a nation that did righteousness, and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Hmm. Taking notes. Roman number one, Isaiah's command to preach against Israel's sin. And I'll give you the rest of it when we come after we pray. Isaiah's command to preach against Israel's sin. And reading verse number two, you might scratch your head and say, well, where's the sin? We'll be discussing it. Let's pray and ask God to meet with us. Dear Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for blessing us and for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that we have tonight to look into your word and to study it. Lord, it's going to be a futile exercise if you don't guide us, if you don't lead us. And Lord, give to us what we can apply to our own lives. Meet with us in a fresh way, and we'll thank you for it, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Cry aloud, spare not. Isaiah was commanded to lift his voice and cry against the sins of God's people. They had grown oblivious to their sin. 
and the prophet was to reveal it to them. Remember, this is Isaiah. God gave him this amazing prophecy, much of which looked to the future. Uh, Assyria was still on the, on the horizon. Babylon was some years in their future. And God had prophesied all of those things and frequently had mixed them all up. And so one day you're looking at Assyria, the next day Babylon, the next day Assyria, the next day the millennium, and then all the way back to square one, and then all the way back to their current stage before going to the millennium again. It really creates a whiplash as you're studying through it. And I don't know, but I'm kind of thinking that God, as he gave that, did not expect Israel, Judah, to have a full comprehension of all that he was talking about. He simply wanted to encourage them and to remind them that he's got this. And then along the way, encourage them to repent. Letter A, Judah's current condition, and that's where we are tonight. He's going to take us back at this stage to where they are in Isaiah's day, which was a deplorable uh, spiritual state. Number one, Judah emphasized their outward obedience. I'm going to read verse 2 again. I want you to listen very carefully to verse number 2. Isaiah said, yet they seek, or God through Isaiah said, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Can you find fault in them in this verse? And I'll answer it for you. No. This is, this is overwhelming. The testimony that's being presented here. Judah emphasized their outward obedience. Here's the rub. They were going through all of the motions religiously. They were checking off all the boxes. Everything on the outward they were taking care of. They were careful to dot all the I's and cross all the T's, thinking that their outward conformance to the law would suffice it before God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice, describes their attempts to please God by asking Him if there were any laws that were missing. God, I know we've got all these laws, but are we missing any? They wanted to make sure they were checking all the boxes. This describes the people's emphasis on their outward appearance to God with no concern for the condition of their hearts. However, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 42 verse 20 says, For ye dissembled in your hearts when ye sent me unto the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us unto the Lord our God, and according to, unto all that the Lord our God shall say, so declare unto us, and we will do it. And now I have this day declared it to you, but ye have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God nor anything for the which he hath sent me to you. Verse 3, <clears throat> Wherefore, or why, have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore, or why, have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast ye find pleasure, and exact all your labors. Number 2, Judah questioned why God had not honored their fastings. They had complained that they had sacrificed for the Lord and that they had fasted, but God had not taken notice. In essence, 
they sarcastically said to the Lord, What good was it for us to go without eating, if you're not going to pay attention anyway? To this, God replied, that instead of afflicting their souls to root out any sin and selfishness, they found other ways to feed their fleshly appetites like envy and malice. They also used the exercise to demand more from their servants and, and or they refocused their attention from food to collecting from their debtors. Malachi 3.14, Ye have said it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept His ordinance, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts. In other words, God, we went without food for you, and you didn't take notice. So what good was it for us to fast? Letter B, God's challenge to Judah. <clears throat> Verse 4, Behold, ye fast for strife and debate, and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day, to make your voice to be heard on high. Number one, God challenged them on their faulty fasting. Their faulty fasting. <clears throat> Either the motive of their fasting was to fuel their agitation and debates with other religious parties, or the strife and debate was the result of their irritability from not eating. Their fasting was being wrongly used in either case. God was calling them out on their inappropriate use of what should have been a purifying process. Verse 5. Is it such a fast that I have chosen, God said, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Number two, their fasting should humble them before God. God describes an acceptable fast here. A fast of the Lord was to be a humbling of one's soul. As the penitent would come before God with sackcloth and ashes, a sign of contrite humility, the one fasting should assume the same humility of the heart. The fasting they were doing was nothing but an outward show. Verse 6. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke. Number 3. A proper fast would result in compassion and generosity. While Judah was outwardly going through the motions, including fasting, they were abusing their servants. God wanted to see a change of heart in His people, demonstrating by how they treated those in their care. A godly fast would result in compassion and fair treatment of their servants, and an understanding and generous response to those indebted to them. They had become so ensnared in their sinful treatment of others, it was as if they were yoked or bound to their sins. The fast, as God ordained, was to break them free from their yoke of bondage. In Jeremiah 34, 10, Now when all the princes and people which had entered into the covenant heard that every one should let his manservant 
and every one his maidservant go free, that none should serve themselves of any themselves any more than they obeyed and let them go. But afterwards they turned and caused the servants and the handmaids whom they had let go free to return and brought them into subjection for their servants and for handmaids. So when the spiritual leader said, you need to let those slaves go free, they did. But then they looked in the fields, nobody working. So they went and they found the slaves and they brought them back and made them work again. Verse 7. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. Number four. A proper fast opens our eyes to the needs of others. The kind of fast God desired was one that elicited the opening of one's eyes to those who were needy. The scales of selfishness began to melt away as a result of afflicting one's soul. When we're fat and happy, when we're full, we don't really notice the needs of others. But after we go through a time where we're hurting, all of a sudden somebody else hurting begins to resonate. Our hearts soften to the needs of those around us. In 1 John 3:17, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Verse 8, Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee, and the glory of the Lord shall be thy rearward. In other words, when you fast, one of my fasts, he said, you will come out of that with renewed strength, and thy light will bring forth as the morning. So number five, a proper fast would result in God's merciful blessings. If Judah would be humbled before God by a proper fast, God would bless them. As the light spreading across the land in the morning, he would also cause their health to revive. In poetic fashion, God describes the spiritual response to a proper fast. Righteousness would go before them, and the Lord would guard them from the rear. Verse 9. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If thou take away from the midst of thee the oak, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity. Number six, a proper fast would cause God to answer. When Judah experienced a true soul-afflicting fast, they would call on the Lord and he would answer. Their oppressive treatment of those under them would cease, and their hypocritical criticism of others would also stop. Ultimately, their conversations would no longer be filled with the empty talk of just themselves. 1 Peter 3.12, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Let us see God's response if Judah repented. Verse 10, and if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, 
and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday. Number one, God sheds his light on those showing compassion to the hungry and hurting. The one whose fast was to afflict the soul and draw them closer to the Lord would come away with a greater desire to serve others and meet their needs. As one begins to minister to the hungry and hurting, both physically and emotionally, God will shine his light on that individual that they might stand out in a dark world. God is looking for individuals to be lights for him in the world. Psalm 37, 6. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Verse 11. And the Lord shall guide thee continually, and satisfy thy soul in drought, and make thy fat thy bones. And thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. Number two, God will richly bless the one properly responding to a fast. In other words, if you fast the way God tells you to fast, and your soul is afflicted, and you are humbled before God, and your eyes are opened to the needs around you, God will bless you accordingly. If Judah would be purged from their false pretenses in serving God, and their merciless treatment of others, through the convicting work of a true fast, God would in turn bless them and satisfy them in spite of the conditions around them. His blessings are described here as making fat thy bones and being like a watered garden. Jeremiah 17, 7, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is, for he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when the heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Verse 12, And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. Number three, Judah's humility from their fast before God would cause their cities to be rebuilt. God directed here their attention to what could be if they would get right with him by afflicting their souls in their sinful ways. They're cities that will have been destroyed. This is it. It's so incredible. The cities have not been destroyed yet. God is giving a prophecy. In the future, those cities would be destroyed. And God says this, if you fast the way you're supposed to, I will bless you, and I will rebuild those cities that, that haven't been destroyed yet, but because I'm going to judge you, they will be destroyed, but because of my mercy, I will rebuild them if you fast right. <laughs> they would be examples for the generations to follow by their humble submission to God. In Isaiah 64, I'm sorry, Isaiah 61 and verse 4, and they shall build the old wastes, the places that were torn down. They shall raise up the former desolations, 
and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. Though they're not even broken down yet, God said, I will rebuild them. Verse 13, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. Notice the theme here is the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath, he told the Old Testament Jew, to keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath. It was to be a very um, strong example to them. God worked six days. He created six days, then he rested. It wasn't because he was tired. It was because he was setting an example for his people to set aside a day for the Lord. In the Old Testament, that was called the day of Sabbath. This is another, I'm sorry, number four is Judah was challenged to restore the sanctity of the Sabbath. This is another of God's conditions for blessing. Judah had not been keeping the Sabbath day. To them, it was just another day. A day for pleasure and for fulfilling their own plans. God ordained that one day each week be set aside as a day of rest. It would be a day to focus on Him and His goodness. They had basically ignored it. And I will say, once we get into the New Testament, obviously we are no longer under the sabbatical law. That's part of an Old Testament Jewish law. But I do believe that it is not inappropriate to assume a principle from it. To where we take one day a week and we particularly honor God on that day. Now, in bygone generations, all the businesses would close on Sunday. You go to church in the morning, have a great big afternoon dinner together, and then snooze for the rest of the afternoon. I mean, that was, or the kids would go out and play. That was the, the modern day Sabbath. Well, we're too civilized for that today. We're too busy for that today. We've got too many things going today. We can't do that. I think we're missing something in our society today where we no longer have a day set aside to remember the Lord, a day of rest. In Exodus 31, 15, six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. So in the Old Testament, God was very serious about it. This was a capital offense if you worked on the Sabbath. In the New Testament, we're no longer under that law. In the New Testament, now we serve the Lord, not because we're under His thumb as law. Now we serve Him because we are redeemed and we owe Him our lives. Verse 14, Then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the, of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Number five, God promises special blessings by honoring the Sabbath. By honoring the Lord, by setting aside one day each week, he is glorified, and he promises to bless. Riding on high places describes being a conqueror, riding in his chariot, occupying and looking around and surveying the land that he just conquered. God promised to bless those who honor the Sabbath in truly incredible ways. Of course, one of my favorite verses, Psalms 37, 4, Delight thyself also in the Lord, 
and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. So what's my responsibility? To think about all the things I want? No, my responsibility is to love him so much that my desires begin to become the same as his desires. Number two, Judah's perilous position. Letter A, Judah's problem. Oh, they had a problem. We're going to switch gears just a little bit now in chapter 59. Verse 1, chapter 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. He's defending his power. And the question is, is God all-powerful or not? And he's answering it here. The Lord's hand is not shortened. God is all-powerful, he said. Number one, Judah's problem was not because God is not able. That's not their problem. This chapter follows the theme of the previous one. God is addressing backslidden Judah during the time of Isaiah. He begins by saying their predicament, which was the coming judgments by Assyria followed by Babylon, is not God's fault. <laughs> They're not going to be judged because of God's fault. It's their fault. God is not hamstrung, nor is he impotent. He's all-powerful and able to save. And by the way, he can hear just fine. God, can you hear me? <laughs> I can hear just fine, he said. Hebrews 7.25, Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Verse 2, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. Number two, Judah's problem was sin. It had separated them from God. Judah had become irritated that God would not answer their prayers. Have you ever been irritated because God would not answer your prayers? <laughs> they indignantly believed God should answer them for who they were. But God, we're your chosen people. You need to honor us. We're Jews, they said. You need to hear our prayers. Problem was they were sinful Jews. And that sin had caused a separation between them and their God. Letter B, Judah's litany of sins. Verse 3, For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue hath muttered perverseness. Number one, a list of Judah's sins begins here with violence and deceit. Violence and deceit. Here begins a list of Judah's deplorable sins, responsible for the chasm between them and their God. They thought God was not listening. Well, God says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I'm going to hold off on the sin, then God says, I'm, I'm, I can't hear you. You're holding on to your sin. I can't hear you. Get rid of the sin. Then I can hear you. They were guilty of violence and even murder. Every conceivable sin was being committed with their hands, like fraud and stealing. They were deceitful, full of lies, and had grown vulgar in their speech. Verse 4, None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity, they speak lies, they conceive mischief, and bring forth iniquity. Number 2, 
Lying made the courts incapable of bringing justice. There was no justice when lawsuits were brought before the court, as both sides refused to be truthful. They lied in their accusations, and they lied in their defense. They put their trust in their vain deceit, believing themselves to be able to weasel out of any problem. Their lives are characterized by all kinds of trouble. Verse 5, they hatch cockatrice eggs and weave the spider's web. He that, eateth of their de the, sorry, he that eateth of their eggs dieth, and that which is crushed breaketh out into a viper. This verse is a little gross. <laughs> Number three, Judah had become full of all kinds of evil. They had become awash in hatching all kinds of evil. Their evil purposes were poisonous as the cockatrice and as unstable as the spider's webs. Anyone eating of their plans would die as assuredly as one eating the developing egg of the cockatrice, which was a poisonous viper. By attempting to destroy their plans, the result is simply more evil is born. Verse 6, their webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Number four, Judah's evil works could not be covered by their deceit. I think you're getting it. They said, God, why aren't you listening to us? And now God is telling them, here's why I'm refusing to hear you. And he's listing all of the sins in their lives, like murder and deceit and fraud and stealing. This was what they were doing, and they wondered why God would not listen to them. Judah's evil works could not be covered by their deceit, number four, just as trying to cover oneself with spider webs. Can you imagine? Trying to take a bunch of spider webs and cover yourself as a garment. It would be insufficient. Even so, their deceit could not shield their evil works from the spotlight of the truth. They couldn't hide their evil. Their works were filled with sin, and violence had run wild through the land. Verse 7. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. Number five, Judah had sunk so deep, their thoughts were filled with iniquity. That's all I could do. Their brain was full of sin. That's all I could think about was sin. Their spiritual deadness had left them susceptible to the most horrible of sins. Violence had become widespread. Murders were common. People's thoughts ran to retaliation and evil. Judah was on a downward spiral of more and more sin, with each descending level become more wicked. Letter C. Judah's predicament because of sin. Verse 8. The way of peace they know not, and there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths, Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. Number one, peace 
eluded the people of Judah because of their sin. They wanted peace, but they refused to do what it took to get peace. Their sinful ways had left Judah in turmoil. Peace was not to be found. They were incapable of finding any justice for the crimes committed against them. Everywhere they turned, the people were crooked. They lived in a world of deception and cruelty. Verse 9, Therefore is judgment far from us, neither doth justice overtake us. We wait for the light, but behold obscurity. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. Number two, justice and hope for a better life never came. Described here is an environment overrun by sin and deceit. Justice is no longer able to be found. They continue to wait for things to get better, for light to break through, but things only get worse. Such is the life of someone in sin. This gets worse and worse. Proverbs 4.19, The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. Verse 10, We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. Number three, sin blinds us from any spiritual perception. We can't see it. Sin had blinded the people of Judah. The more sin is allowed in a person's life, the darker their spiritual light becomes until they can no longer see at all. When confronted by the truth, those who are spiritually blind honestly can't see it. They have become incapable of discerning the very thing that could help them. Their darkness and sin leads to places of desolation, hopelessness. Verse 11, We roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment, but there is none, for salvation, but it is far off from us. So number four, the end of sin is misery and hopelessness. One caught in the hopelessness and desolation of a sinful lifestyle makes him want to cry out from fear and pain, like a bear cub crying out for its mother or a dove's mournful call. Those in sin cry out in misery. They look for justice and freedom from their trials, but there is none, none to save them in their distress. Verse 12, For our transgressions are multiplied before thee, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. So number five, Judah was guilt-ridden, but unrepentant. Not only were they well acquainted with their sins, but there is a heavenly accounting of each and every one of their sins. The memory of those sins tortured them, and did the knowledge, as did the knowledge, they would be held accountable for their wickedness. They would face their account with which would testify against them. They were guilty before God, but they continued in their rebellion. Verse 13. In transgressing and lying against the Lord, and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. 
Number six, Judah's heart condition was expressed in lies and rebellion. Jeremiah 5.23, But this people hath a revolting and rebellious heart. They are revolted and gone. Verse 14, And judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Number seven, there was no justice in Judah because of their lies. No one could be trusted because everyone was lying. Justice in Judah had become completely perverted. Those who were innocent ended up being the condemned, while the guilty were let off to go free. There was no justice because there was no truth. Equity or integrity was nowhere to be found. Verse 15, Yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. Number 8, Judah's lack of truth displeased the Lord. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There was no truth in Judah. Those who tried to break free from its grip and live righteously became the prey of the unrighteous. Their wicked condition sickened the Lord as He saw their complete lack of truth and righteousness. Number three, God's intervention to Judah. It's time for an intervention. God is going to make an intervention here. Verse 16, And he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, it sustained him. Notice the change. Letter A, God saw Judah's lost condition and introduced his plan of redemption. Isaiah was lost in sin. God could not hear because they were so sinful. They were in a lost condition, hopeless. And God said, I can't allow that to go on. So God intervened mercifully on their behalf and introduced to them His plan of redemption. Verse 17, For He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon His head. And He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. You see the warrior putting on his armor here. Letter B, God would prepare for spiritual battle on behalf of His people. The picture of God suiting up for battle. God would armor up to fight against the enemy that had enslaved them. As the Christian was to put on the whole armor of God, so God Himself is clad for spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6.14, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 17, And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Verse 18, According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the islands he will repay recompense. Letter C. God would bring his judgment against the wicked ways 
of Judah and their enemies. So God, in the last verse, introduced his plan of, self, plan of redemption. But he still has to take care of a proper spanking, if you will, of his people. God is about to repay their deeds of holding them accountable for their sin. Judah would soon face the Babylonian captivity, later followed by that of the Romans. God would also bring judgment to the heathen nations who abused Judah during their various judgments. God would bring the judgment that Judah had grown to assume would never come. Oh, that's our nature. God has not struck us down with lightning yet, so he must be okay with this wicked deed I'm doing. That's not how it works, because God can wait a lot longer than we can. Verse 19. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against them. Letter D. God's judgment would fill the earth with fear. The God that Judah had forsaken and that had been mocked by the heathen nations, was about to rain judgment down upon them for their evil ways. They would then fear the God they had mocked, as they saw His glory as bright as the sun. They will be completely devastated by the Lord's great judgment. Verse 20, And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. Letter E, the Lord will come again and redeem His people. When the Lord Jesus comes again at the end of the tribulation, now this is not talking about the rapture. The rapture will call believers today home to be with Him in heaven for seven years. At the end of the seven years, He will come again to earth. That's what's being described here. When He comes to Zion, He will come in great power and glory. He will defeat all the hosts, his enemies, as he brings redemption to his people. All who had put their trust in him during that dreadful time of the tribulation will be saved by him. The Lord will save his people from otherwise certain destruction. Romans eleven twenty six, And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Sion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And verse 20, 21, last one. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. Letter F. God gave His people a covenant or a promise to be fulfilled in the millennium. God gave His people a covenant that would be fulfilled during the thousand-year reign of Christ. His Spirit would be upon them and His words would be in their mouths. All who would enter the millennium would keep His words forever. Isaiah 51, 16 and I have put my mouth, I'm sorry, I have put my words in thy mouth, and I have covered thee in the shadow of mine hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth, and say unto Zion, Thou art my people. <coughs> Whew. 
We covered an awful lot tonight. Thanks for being patient. If we're going to get through the book, we've got to go at a breakneck speed. That's about how we're going. So thanks for your patience. Let's take this now to the Lord and thank Him for it. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your love. Thank you for these chapters in Isaiah 58 and 59. Lord, thank you for the marvelous truths you exposed in these verses. And Lord, for giving us once again a fresh vision of your nature. Thank you for your justice, but thank you for your mercy. And thank you for this time, Lord. We'll commit it to you, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.